Hey everybody, Magnus here. I'm just gonna warn you right now, this one's gonna be a little bit of a Lulu. I've been taking a long, fond journey through the music of my youth lately. My youth is a slightly subjective term here, in as much as one of these albums that I'm going to be talking about was released four years before I was even fucking born, but I digress. My basic tastes these days tend to run toward instrumental music. So, stuff like film scores, classical music, ballets, post-rock, that kind of 80s-ish synthies stuff that's kind of a minor craze right now, and basically stuff like that. But, I guess in the vocabulary of rock music with conventional lyrics and whatnot, there are certain albums that stand out. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say they're my favorites, because I'm not sure that it'd be all that accurate. But there are certain albums out there that just somehow rise above. Make sense? There are certain albums that are... They're hard to, to parcel out and listen to only one or two songs from. For me, with these albums, it's typically all or nothing. They're amazing, but are they classic? I don't know, because... To me, classic, in the strictest sense of the word, requires a, a certain kind of critical and or commercial consensus. And I think it'd be safe to say that those things are noticeably absent from these albums. But I guess as far as sentimentality goes, well, these are the albums that I turn to when I want to remember what I was really listening to back in the old days. And they are R.E.M.'s New Adventures in Hi-Fi. So, if not for Monster, it probably would be fair to say that R.E.M. spent something like six years on kind of a country music tangent by about the time that New Adventures in Hi-Fi came out. But like I say, Monster is sort of an interloper and all of that, but even so, the country tinge of New Adventures in Hi-Fi is, at least for me, always welcome. And I need to put this all on pause and say I don't mean country in that obnoxious honky-tonk kind of way, but then again, my view is that country music isn't really country music anymore. It's pop music and a cowboy hat, and that's not exactly the same thing. Boy, am I rambling here. Anyway, so New Adventures in Hi-Fi, right? I think what I cherish about this album is how many cigarette songs this thing has. Certain songs out there just make you want to smoke. Or they make me want to smoke anyway. Except I can't smoke anymore. I have to vape. But back when New Adventures in Hi-Fi came out, it was smoking. Certain songs made me want to smoke. And this album has got a bunch. There's How the West Was Won and Where It Got Us. There's Ebo the Letter, Leave, Bittersweet Me, and probably others. Of all these albums, this is by far the most cigarette-oriented 
or I guess nicotine oriented or whatever works best for you. And for that alone, it deserves mention. Next, Led Zeppelin, Presence. The song from Presence that everybody seems to remember is Achilles' Last Stand, and there's a reason for that. It's fucking awesome. But the first time I listened to it, the song was fading out before I thought to myself, holy crap on a cracker, that song didn't have a chorus. Any way you slice it, Presence just wasn't one of the big sellers of the Led Zeppelin catalog. And I won't lie, it took me a long time to really get it. And this was in spite of knowing damn good and well what the behind the scenes story was with Presence. Ultimately, each song on Presence has a sort of desperate atmosphere about it. It's like it permeates the whole album. Basically, at some point, damned if I know when, but at some point, Led Zeppelin bought into their own legend. They really did believe that whole rock god thing. So when they were laid low by fate, by quirks of circumstance, they took it rather personally. Perhaps too personally. When I finally connected to the album, I was 18 and I was so sick with mono that my doctor later told me that he was kind of surprised that I'd even survived. Or at least never had to go to the hospital. I was stuck at home for something like two and a half months. My throat was on fire, guys. It just hurt so bad I couldn't speak. And just physically, I was weak. I couldn't... I couldn't lift a half-gallon container of milk. Now, to put that in perspective, I'd one time lifted something like 140 pounds of weight off of a friend of mine when the bar slipped on him, but now I couldn't lift a container of milk. My spleen was enlarged, and because as, like as a direct result of that, it was very fragile. So if I overexerted myself, or shit, if I just got really pissed off about something, there was a good chance that my spleen could rupture and I'd spend the next 15 minutes dying a very painful death. And frankly, it was cramping my style. I wanted to play tennis again, hold hands with a girl while we walked in the warm sunlight. But that kind of stuff was off limits. I was too sick for tennis. I'll be in remains, sleeping now to rise again. And my girl and I had split over something retarded, so even small things like human contact were out of the question. Days went by when you and I made an eternal summer's glow. So far away and distant, our mutual time to grow. Above all, what Led Zeppelin wanted to do was become what they'd always been in the past. And that's what I wanted too. I wanted things back to normal. And as Led Zeppelin discovered when they recorded Presence, 
And as I discovered when I listened to it 23 years later, that was out of reach. At least for the time being. So that's what I think about every time I listen to Presence. To me, the title of the album may as well be Ruminations on Mononucleosis, because that's how I always think of it. Still, there's an unsung amount of diversity that's going on here. There's that 1950s rockabilly stuff with Candy Store Rock. There's the ultra-widescreen epic Achilles' Last Stand, which, for you aficionados out there, is arguably John Bonham's finest rhythm track. And there's even funny stuff like Royal Orleans. Now, no, there are no acoustic songs. There's no keyboard. Everything is fully electric, but that doesn't mean the album isn't dynamic. And that's good. Pearl Jam, No Code. Again, not one of the big hits. Pearl Jam's previous albums were a lot more commercially successful. Hell, even some of their later ones were more commercially successful, but I do think it would be fair to say that No Code is a very transitional record for Pearl Jam. They were moving away from what they'd always been and kind of trying to figure out who they are now. And that basic theme resonated with me when this record first came out. I was a sophomore in high school. My freshman year in high school was something akin to a triumph. I'd succeeded at things I'd never thought were possible. And it'd be fair to say that the future looked very bright indeed. And then came my sophomore year to balance out the ledger. All the good fortune, all the lucky breaks, all the stellar achievements that came my way my freshman year avoided me like the fucking plague my sophomore year. My entire social life began changing, and some other really stupid shit happened to me as well. Plus, there were some complications going on with some family members that I'm keeping to myself. So, right off, I was in the right frame of mind to absorb no code. A year earlier, or even a year later, no chance in hell, but No Code as an album came along at just that right moment. You know? I liked Hail Hail as a song when the album first came out, but what I ultimately gravitated to was In My Tree. When it comes to No Code, In My Tree is the standout song, at least in my opinion. That's the track that sums it all up. Up here in my tree, newspapers matter not to me. Up here so high, the boughs they break. Up here so high, the sky I scrape. And I remember listening to that when I was an extremely pissed off 16 year old and thinking, dude, you have no idea. Above everything, what I think I wanted my sophomore year was for everybody to just leave me the fuck alone. And, I guess to be fair to all parties involved, I'm pretty sure that's all Eddie Vedder wanted with In My Tree, but even musically, In My Tree is a pretty good summary of what No Code is all about. I mean, yeah, 
It's a bit loud and it has some electric guitars going, but Jack Irons was making his presence felt with his very different drumming style. After all those years of listening to Dave Abrazis on the drums, it'd be fair to say that Jack Irons took a lot of getting used to. A lot. But when it works, it works. And it definitely works within my tree. Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream. This song, actually, you know what, before we even get into this, yes, 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 I know what you're all thinking right now. But Magnus, but Magnus, Siamese Dream was a fucking huge and successful album. Why are you saying that this belongs on a list of also rants? Well, there's a fucking reason for that, guys. Let's just be realistic with each other. When it comes to Smashing Pumpkins, it begins, ends, and consists of little else other than melancholy and the infinite sadness. So in comparison to that, anything that the Smashing Pumpkins ever did is kind of an also-ran. So in relation to that, I believe Siamese Dream belongs on my list. And if that's disturbing for you, well, fuck you. This is my list. So anyway, this album didn't come out my freshman year, but that's when I first started really paying attention to the Pumpkins. I mean, like I say, yeah, Melancholy was out there by then, but honestly, there was a point when Melancholy just seemed like too much to really listen to. At first. So, I just kind of gravitated back to Siamese Dream. And, guys, I gotta tell you, Cherub Rock is fucking awesome. Yes. But the song that I always came back to is Rocket. And I think the reason for that is I just loved the nonsensical lyrics, the kind of aimless... A wandering lead guitar that pounds you into fucking submission bass drum. The whole thing for me is just awesome. And as with so many things with the Smashing Pumpkins, I mean, who gives a shit what this song is about? It's cool to listen to. And in the end, isn't that what a rock band is supposed to provide? I think so. Oasis. Definitely maybe. Live Forever is probably the song that everybody remembers from this one, and Lord knows that's my favorite song from Definitely Maybe, but what makes Definitely Maybe a damn good album is how each each song seems to build upon the one that came before. Now, don't get me wrong. I was well aware of the art of compiling an album in a way that provides a journey for the listener, but this was the first time, Definitely Maybe, this was the first time I could remember hearing something that was designed specifically for a CD market instead of a vinyl market. And to my surprise, I discovered that vinyl doesn't have a monopoly on the goals, aims, and philosophies of albums. Now, it seems kind of retarded to say that now, but in my defense, I was only 14. The other thing I liked about Oasis was how their their Britpop sound was just such a big contrast to all the, the grunge uh, stuff that it only really just peaked in America. I liked that heavy, loud, dark, grungy stuff, but 
a little variety is always welcome. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. studied the form of comics into it. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get kissed. The giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks, just like always. I'm your host, Magnus, and we finally reached the end. For something like a year, actually, I think more than a year now, I've been working my way through different kinds of mini-series dedicated to one particular topic or theme or idea or character, concept, just whatever, you know? This has been going on, I dare not exaggerate, for at least a year. I mean, actually, I think maybe even longer than that, because I think starting with the Extinction Level Event mega-series that I, that I did starting in July of 2015, going right on through to right now, pretty much every episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. It's related in some way or another to a big mega-series, you know? Now, this doesn't count things like the big book report and the Smallville retrospective. I'm not counting that stuff. I'm saying all my other episodes have mostly related to 
you know, big sweeping epic mega series and whatnot. And I promised you guys whenever I started this that it was going to go on for at least a year. And indeed it has. So here we are. It's been over a year later. A lot longer than a year, actually. And it'd be kind of nice just to sit down and talk about comics or movies or TV episodes or what have you that just don't have anything to do with a larger mega series that's going on. You know, it's okay sometimes to just take a break. And so for at least a little while, that's, that's what I intend to do. And so one of the things that I haven't really had a whole lot of time for lately is just sitting around reading comics just for pleasure, you know? I think other podcasters have mentioned this type of thing, you know, in their own shows where they say that they enjoy doing their podcasts and everything, and those things are a lot of fun. But sometimes it comes off as though they're reading comics because it relates to an episode of their show that's coming soon, and so that's why they're doing it, you know? And they don't really have tons and tons of time to just read comics that they enjoy without there being some kind of a... I don't want to say ulterior motive, but, you know, there being some sort of a a purpose to it, you know, for producing content and meeting deadlines and stuff like that. And so that's kind of where I found myself lately. And what I wanted to do was just spend some time sitting around, read some comics, and just enjoy those comics. Which has turned into a podcast episode, so here we are. One of the comics that I read was Star Wars Tales number one. Now, for those of you who don't know, Star Wars Tales was an anthology series. A uh, Star Wars anthology comic book started by Dark Horse back in, I should, I, I should say, I think either late, late, late in 1998 or early in 1999. Well, I say that. You know what? Fuck it. Um, I, I think I can actually just take a look at the cover date, and hopefully that'll tell me something. And it actually tells me nothing. It just says Star Wars Tales number one. But the in, the indicia may actually be what... There, I should think there is indicia. That should hopefully be what tells the tale, but I'm not actually seeing it in here. Which is, needless to say, really weird. So. That's kind of... I mean, guys, I know this may sound kind of disorganized and everything, but shit. I, I guess I kind of assumed that I'd be able to just glance at the indicia while working through this, you know, my little spiel here. And, uh... Ah, here it is. Uh, I just did a quickie web search and come to find out Star Wars Tales, number one, was released on September the 29th, 1999. And as I say, the, you know, the concept behind it's actually uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, Star Wars Tales features the world's greatest comics creators and their spins on the Star Wars saga, both within and beyond the continuity. So 
this is a, a chance, I guess, to sort of just play around in the sandbox that is the the Star Wars universe, or maybe the sandbox that was the expanded universe as it was back in 1999, and obviously which no longer exists in that form. But anyway, I'll spare you that. And I, mean, I don't mean that to sound, you know, passive aggressive or anything, because, you know, very honestly, I was never such a big fan of the expanded universe that the old expanded universe basically getting nuked off the face of the map and replaced with a different expanded universe really bothered me all that much. You know, it just, this was one of those things where I didn't have a horse in the race, you know? So I can totally sympathize with people that were upset about that. You know, that legendary video that Scott Rifen made of him knocking star Wars books off his shelf, because those things have just been nuked right out of continuity, so to speak. I'm using quotation marks around continuity, but you know, knocking those books off of his, uh, his those Star Wars books off of his uh, bookshelf because they've been nuked right out of continuity. And I don't want it to sound as though I'm looking down my nose at those people because believe me, I'm not. But this is just something that I never had any sort of personal attachment to. So there you go. Now, I guess for you know, Star Wars Tales, my entry point on this was not actually the first issue. It was the second issue. You know, this was, this was a, uh, a, a quarterly, a, a quarterly book. And so that kind of worked for me when I was, you know, at that phase in life, because I wasn't going to a comic book shop on any kind of regular basis. And I kind of liked the idea of a quarterly book that it was an anthology series and, you know, push comes to shove. It doesn't really matter if you miss one issue or the next, you know, you can always jump right back in and pick up, you know, from the beginning of whatever story is going on. And that may actually be what, what ultimately undid Star Wars tales, but maybe that's a different topic for a different day. Suffice it to say though, then as now I was extremely, I was receptive to Star Wars tales, put it that way. It was easy for me to, I guess, understand what Dark Horse was up to and wanting to create a, a an anthology book with a, an ever-changing cast of characters, an ever-changing uh, creative team, always shifting storylines. You know, there's no single through line for Star Wars tales. It's It's basically just short stories. And the thing about Star Wars that I really enjoy is that in order to tell the story that he was telling, George Lucas had to create this huge universe of all of these different characters and planets and uh, organizations and institutions, uh, different factions of different groups and all of these other things. And there's so much potential there for different types of stories involving different types of characters written and drawn by different types of creators. The sky truly is the limit here, you know? And I don't know. I mean, it's this is just an easy thing for me to invest in. So now... All of that having been said, I'm only going to be talking about two of the stories in Star Wars Tales number one. There are, in fact, four stories 
uh, to go through here, but I'm only going to be talking about two of them. The two stories that I'm going to talk about are, first, life, death, and the living force, and then second and finally, Skippy the Jedi droid. There are actually two stories in between. Now, one of those stories is a sort of an ongoing, I guess, serial involving Darth Vader. And I don't want to start a story that I'm in this episode that I don't want to say I'll never finish. But I'm not likely to come back to it anytime soon, put it that way. And so, you know, as much as I do kind of, you know, dig this Darth Vader story. I don't know. It's it just feels beyond the scope, honestly, of what this particular episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality wants to be. So that's not to say I'll never talk about it. It's just I'm not sure when I'll come back to Star Wars Tales as a title. And so, like I say, I don't want to start something that I'm not going to finish anytime soon. So that's one of the stories I'm going to be skipping. The other story is entitled Mara Jade, A Night on the Town. And Honestly, the reason I'm not going to talk about that story is because I hate, 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 fucking hate Mara Jade as a character. I've always thought Mara Jade is the most annoying fucking character in all of Star Wars. And this is... I mean, look, I could sit here for a good 15 or 20 minutes ripping this story to shit because of the fact that I just don't like Mara Jade and that's the reason I don't like this story. Or I could bypass all of the anger and hatred and negativity and bile and talk about stuff that I am a little bit more interested in. So those are the two stories that I'm going to be skipping. Now, as to the stories that I'm going to talk about, the first one is, as I say, uh, Life, Death, and the Living Force. Writer is Jim Woodring. Artist is Robert... Teraniski. I'm not really sure how to pronounce this. I'm not sure, actually, and I'm not even sure if this is S-H-I or S-K-I, but whatever, Teranishi or Teraniski, whatever this is. So, letterer is Michael Taylor, color rendering by Christopher Chukri, editor is Pete Janes. On the planet of Orarua, a young Obi-Wan Kenobi narrowly escapes death at the hands of a squally hawk. He seeks out his master, Qui-Gon Jinn, who has a small, obnoxious Magonite named Mosco Bulpa on his shoulder. They take Mosco back to their camp, where Mosco annoys Obi-Wan to no end, but gets fed by Qui-Gon, for which he's significantly less than grateful. Mosco leaves, and in the middle of the night, brings what is apparently his clan to the camp, and... Uh, in an attempt to kill the two Jedi and steal everything they have. They're unsuccessful as the Jedi end up killing every last one of them. Qui-Gon suggests they find a new camp, fearing that more of them will come later. While searching for a new campsite, Obi-Wan asks Qui-Gon why he originally fed and took care of Mosco, then killed him without a hint of remorse. Qui-Gon explains that everything he does is dictated by the Living Force. If Mosco had killed him, he would not be able to do his job as a Jedi. 
Obi-Wan points to a nearby mountain as a new campsite, but as they get closer, it starts looking incredibly horrific. Qui-Gon explains that it's a sacrificial altar to a Cylon. Qui-Gon says that he must go in, that the living force is directing him. Obi-Wan reluctantly goes with them, and the two ruthlessly kill the massive Cylon inside. When the two Jedi have set up camp nearby, Obi-Wan asks if, asks if and why that was really the right thing to do. Qui-Gon says that the living force is a mysterious thing, and he doesn't know why it told him to carry out the attack. Despite this, Qui-Gon comforts Obi-Wan, telling him that he is in the hands of something much greater and much better than he can imagine. The end. So, what did I think? This was a fun, adventurous little romp in the Star Wars universe. And honestly, this is the type of stuff that I could picture Phantom Menace era uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan doing together. You know, uh, going out camping on these planets and, you know, running all over the running all over the galaxy doing this, that, and the other. And the art, it Obi-Wan really does look like Ewan McGregor. And Qui-Gon really does look like Liam Neeson. Now, whether or not you think those are good things or bad things, they are nevertheless true things. You know, and I don't mean this that the artist basically uh, traced a bunch of trading cards and publicity photos, and that's where the likeness comes from. It really does resemble the the actors, but not to the degree that you can tell that it's lifted or traced from something else. So Robert Taranishi or Taraniski, whatever this guy's name is, he actually did an incredible job uh, with the material. And that by itself might have been enough. You know, the fact that this is a very, this just has a very Star Wars type of vibe to it, you know, a very pre-Empire type of Star Wars vibe to it, you know. But it's really the dialogue that kind of takes this to the next level. The, the dialogue by Jim Woodring, especially Qui-Gon's dialogue, it just has this very Qui-Gon type of air to it. You know, you could, it's easy to hear Liam Neeson's voice whenever you read, read this dialogue, you know. Uh, there's a moment, and this is on, uh, of course they don't number the fucking pages. I, I guess this was a thing even in the 90s, not to number the fucking pages, so I can't even tell you what page number this is. But basically, it's that little moment where Obi-Wan rushes up to Qui-Gon and says, Master Qui-Gon, your lightsaber, it's a monster, you know, go kick his ass, and all this stuff. And Qui-Gon responds, the lightsaber isn't necessary, Obi-Wan, you've quite deterred the Squally Hawk. And Obi-Wan asks, you know, what, what the fuck, that was a Squally Hawk? And Qui-Gon says, yes, and unless I'm mistaken, you've put an end to its illustrious career. It won't be able to eat with that uh, broken mouth that you gave it. I'm afraid it will starve. And not just this, really, it's we'll get more into it later on in the story, but the the dialogue here just has that sort of I don't know, sort of cloistered uh, type of Jedi temple lingo that honestly a lot of people say wrecked the prequels. 
I kind of always regarded this as a little bit of a stylistic flourish on George Lucas's part. Now, again, you can love or hate that, but I do think that was intentional. And I think it actually is sort of appropriate to the characters that they're that extra two or three degrees removed from society, that they don't necessarily talk the same way that everybody else does. So that to me is actually very convincing. And it just sort of goes to the heart of one of the things that I still to this day actually regard as a little bit of a missed opportunity with uh, Star Wars comics at this time that apart from the odd miniseries here and there, you didn't really get a whole lot of stories that have Phantom Menace era, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, uh, Obi-Wan running around together and having these adventures and, you know, doing this, that, the other. It's, to this day, it's something that I regard as a kind of unfortunate missed opportunity on the part of Dark Horse that this was something that apparently nobody made all that big a priority out of. And I guess the reason that it was always kind of an important thing to me is that the Qui-Gon-Obi-Wan relationship is a pretty significant element of The Phantom Menace, which, again, as a movie, you can love it or you can hate it or whatever. But there's no denying that their dynamic with each other propels a decent bit of the action in the movie. And I don't. this is just, it feels very of a piece with their relationship as it was in The Phantom Menace. And I guess what I mean by that is this characterization of Qui-Gon as a sort of wise, a sort of generic wise elderly Jedi who's teaching his sometimes impatient student not just, you know, big life lessons concerning, you know, you got to be patient. You know, you can't run around acting like a jackass all the time. I'm talking about the finer granularities of what it takes to be a Jedi and live that life and be devoted to the force, serve the force. And there's a moment where, you know, uh, Obi-Wan kind of, I I shouldn't say challenges uh, Qui-Gon, but he does, he does kind of question him. You know, he says, look, master, he, meaning Moscow, Your word is my law, but why do you allow yourself to be insulted by this non-entity? And Qui-Gon answered that, hey, he's doing us a very great favor, Obi-Wan. He's giving us an opportunity to serve the living force without the remotest chance of reward. To which Obi-Wan replies, he'll reward us by cutting our throats. Everyone knows Mogganites are the most treacherous creatures in the galaxy. And so... There's a little bit of, I don't know, conviction here, I guess. What is charity except helping people who are in no position to ever give you any kind of a reward for it? Every, assuming Obi-Wan is to be taken at his word here, nobody in the entire universe trusts Mogganites. And yet, Qui-Gon was willing to help a Mogganite because a MAGA knight needed to be helped. He needed to be rescued, and then he needed time to recover. He needed to be fed. And Qui-Gon had to know that there's a good opportunity, or a good possibility, I should say, 
that Moscow would come back with, you know, his big gang of of uh, other Magonites, and they'd basically try to kill everybody. And when that happens, without so much as changing his facial ex- uh, expression, Qui-Gon mows them all down. But the two don't really conflict with one another, at least in Qui-Gon's mind. A helpless, sentient being needed help, so Qui-Gon helped him. And then, separately and later, Qui-Gon was attacked, and so he defended himself. But it was not wrong to help Moscow. Moscow was in the wrong for attacking Qui-Gon, and in in Qui-Gon's mind, these two incidents, he's able to, I, I don't know, he's just got this weird, fucked up, innate ability to compartmentalize that Obi-Wan manifestly lacks. Left to his own devices, Obi-Wan might have helped Moscow at least a little bit at first, but then the minute Moscow started mouthing off to him, Obi-Wan would have thrown him out the door, and that would have been the end of it. And that's just not the way that Qui-Gon rolls. And it does kind of speak a little bit to the divergence and worldview that existed in the Phantom Menace between Qui-Gon and Yoda. Qui-Gon was a student of the living force, of the here and now. And what needs to be done in the moment? It's not to say that Qui-Gon doesn't ever think about the future. He just doesn't dwell on that. What matters is what's happening right now. What task needs to be accomplished right now? And that is where all of uh, Qui-Gon's, I guess, Jedi spirituality is focused. And that's really not the, the way that Yoda rolls, at least in the prequels. You get the idea that he had kind of changed his tune right about the time of The Empire Strikes Back, but at least in the prequels, and certainly in The Phantom Menace, Yoda is always talking about portents and signs and things to come and the future and, you know, what's on the horizon and, you know, this boy is a cloudy future, you know, fucking blah, 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 blah. And it's strange to think that that same tendency is why it, it it's why Yoda dressed Luke down in The Empire Strikes Back this one a long time have I watched all his life has he looked away to the future to the horizon never his mind on where he was hmm? what he was doing It's just interesting, like I say. And then you start getting into... You start getting into, you know, why it is that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan attacked the giant cave monster. And Obi-Wan asks, you know, surely what we did was wrong, or... If it wasn't wrong, how was it not wrong to kill something that big, that hadn't provoked us, hadn't shown us any kind of aggression, that as far as I can tell, it looks like we attacked it and killed it for no reason. And Qui-Gon answers that with, 
We are Jedi. Our lives are not ours to live as we wish. We are pledged to serve a higher power than ourselves. And Obi-Wan says, but it felt wrong to me. I thought serving the living force meant having respect for all creatures. And the Salon had its place in the natural scheme of things, didn't it? And Qui-Gon replies with, uh, with saying, the ways of the living force are beyond our understanding. Who knows why we were directed to exterminate that beast? Perhaps we were agents of retribution. Perhaps we performed an act of liberation. We cannot know. We can only serve. As a Jedi Knight, you will be called upon to do many things you don't want to do, Obi-Wan. Our path is not an easy one to follow, but fear not. You are in the hands of something much greater and much better than you can imagine. And that kind of speaks, I guess, to the differences in the way that a Jedi views the world and views life than somebody who isn't specifically Force-sensitive. The Jedi commitment is, or I guess the, the Jedi religion, is it, it, it's a commitment to the Force, whether it's the unifying Force or the living Force or, or just what have you. And you don't always know why it is that you're being called to do these things. There's not always a handy, a, a, a handy dandy little instruction manual that will not only tell you what you're doing, it'll tell you why you're doing it. And I realize that this, this is the sort of thing that there's not necessarily time for in a movie. And so I don't really resent Lucas for not touching on this type of stuff too often in, in the prequels. Because let's face it, I mean, he wanted the Jedi and the Sith to be at each other's throats. And he didn't necessarily want to have too sophisticated a cosmology developed for the Force. What he wanted was for... Uh, he wanted the Force to basically have uh, a just vague enough cosmology that we can kind of fill in the gaps ourselves and not have to explain things too much. And that's kind of a stylistic approach that George Lucas is kind of famous for. And so I understand, on the one hand, why it is that he didn't, uh, that he didn't want to get too far into that in the movies. But on the other hand, I do think that this would have been a kind of an interesting exercise for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to talk out between each other for the benefit of the audience. And so I don't think this would have been really too distracting at all for, for mass audiences, or for that matter, from the narrative. I mean, there's a strong argument that plenty of other things were bogging down the narrative and the Phantom Menace as it was, so what's one more thing, right? So, I don't know. Following how you look at it, I suppose. So, after that comes Mara Jade, A Night on the Town, which, as I say, um, we're not going to really get uh, too far into that here. And... Other than to say that yes, it is in this it is in this in this issue, and I have no interest in talking about it beyond that. Following that is Extinction Part One, and then following that is Skippy the Jedi Droid, which is to say the other comic that I wanted to, or the other story I should say, the other story that I wanted to talk about. And 
this is where I kind of have to do a little bit of a mea culpa. Um, when I first started getting heavily into Star Wars in 1999 and God knows in 2000, I mostly stuck with prose novels and the movies. I didn't really go too far beyond that. I kind of thought, and Scott Gardner, if you're listening to this, hear me out before you get angry, all right? I kind of regarded Star Wars comics as being variations on Marvel Star Wars. And especially back in those days, Marvel Star Wars was not very well regarded by most fans. Now, I think Marvel Star Wars has had one hell of a rehabilitation in the last maybe... Well, fuck it. I I credit Two True Freaks with it. So whenever Two True Freaks started, I guess circa 2008 or so, Marvel Star Wars has really come to be regarded in, I think, an overall more positive light. But at least back when Star Wars Tales number 1 came out, I sort of avoided Star Wars comics precisely because of the fact that Marvel Star Wars at that time had such a shitty, shitty, shitty reputation. And on top of all of that, I heard about some Dark Horse comic book out there that had a Jedi droid in it. And I was a little bit of what you might call a Star Wars fundamentalist back in those days. And my attitude of this idea of a Jedi droid, I mean, talk about missing the entire fucking point of what Star Wars is supposed to be all about. And on and on and on. I hadn't actually read the story. I just heard about Skippy the Jedi droid and thought this was something other than what it is. Now, these days, I'm able to compartmentalize Skippy the Jedi droid pretty easily. But back then, this really was a bridge too far for me. And I guess what I'm saying is I didn't get Skippy the Jedi droid is what I'm saying here. So anyway, but nevertheless, this is Skippy the Jedi droid. Writer is Peter David. I shit you not. It is Peter David. Penciler is Martin. I don't know how to pronounce this. Eagleland? Edgeland? I don't know. However you pronounce it. E-G-E-L-A-N-D. So whatever you think is best on that. Inker is Howard M. Shrum. Letterer is Vicky Williams. Colorist is how is a Harold, not Howard. Harold McKinnon. Editor is Pete James. Obi-Wan Kenobi leaves a cantina, sensing the force in someone. But no matter how hard he looks, he isn't able to find anyone despite his great abilities in the force. Suddenly, unbeknownst to Obi-Wan, an astromech droid serving drinks at Jabba's palace gets uh, it bumps into Boba Fett, and in so doing, spills one of the drinks from his tray. But before the drink can hit the ground, the droid, named R5-D4, is able to reach out with his mind and turn the drink back in- into its upright position and then serve it to Jabba the Hutt. And thankfully, nobody's noticed what just happened as it, as it just has it, it's gone by so fast. One day, R5 removes his restraining bolt using the Force, and then Force persuades the Gamorrean guards to let him leave. Skippy then wanders 
the desert for a few days in search of his destiny until finally he gets picked up by a Jawa sandcrawler. There he has visions of Darth Vader and Princess Leia and meets R2-D2 and C-3PO as they're on their way to the, to the Owen Lars homestead. Eventually the sandcrawler stops taking all the droids out and lining them up side by side in front of Owen Lars and Luke Skywalker. Skippy immediately senses the force in Luke and persuades Owen to choose him. Skippy is ecstatic at the undoubtable destiny that lay before him and Luke. However, Skippy soon envisions that without Luke, stormtroopers are going to come and take R2 back to Vader, where he's going to be destroyed and then Leia is going to be killed, leading to a chain reaction of horror that will include the rebellion being destroyed, R2's memory being wiped after uh, 3PO refuses to translate his, actually R5's memory being wiped after 3PO refuses to translate his rubbish, and Luke dying on Tatooine without ever fulfilling his destiny. R5 realizes in that moment what he has to do, and then sets off a mild explosion inside of himself, leading Luke to believe that he has a busted motivator. As he dies, Skippy uses the force on 3PO, telling Luke to buy R2 instead. Owen does so, never knowing the great deed that R5 has just done. The end. So, what did I think? Well, you knew about, you now know about the presuppositions that I brought into this story, but having actually read it, I mean, this is a little bit of a tearjerker, guys. The the fact of the matter is, I kind of... I guess I had sort of written the story in my mind as to how retarded it was. Uh, you know, how t uh, retarded supposedly was going to be. Based on really nothing but my own prejudices. And let's face it, I mean, a Jedi droid is kind of... It's a hard thing to get your head around if... If you're a hardcore Star Wars fan, put it that way. And here's the thing. There's not a clear explanation of how exactly Skippy develops force abilities. But there is a moment where, uh, where the uh, narration says, Skippy practiced nightly. He had no idea what was happening. He only knew that he possessed some sort of bizarre skill, like the fabled Jedi Knights. For his, lubricant, his lubricants were rife with midi-chloroxians. Now, I don't know if that's a typo or what. I don't know if that's meant to say midi-chloroxians or if it's meant to say midi-chlorians, but nevertheless, what it says is midi-chloroxians, giving him mastery of the Force. And if you think about it, the way that a machine would train and use the Force you know, it would not be hard for a machine to have the kind of dispassion and detachment and serenity that Lucas says that Jedi traditionally are supposed to have. And so this, this is kind of an interesting concept. And on the one hand, you don't want this to become a thing in Star Wars, but it does kind of make you wonder about the story potential of this type of development, you know? Now, mostly this is a sort of a tongue-in-cheek type of story. 
I don't think we're supposed to take this completely literally, that this is in any way sort of, you know, canon or continuity within what was the the uh, EU in Star Wars. It, But there are a few, you know, little winks here and there to, shall we say, other things. Now, Skippy was not entirely certain when he became self-aware. Artificial intelligence was nothing new for droids, of course, but Skippy sensed that he was something more, something different. He tried to convey this to his peers, but all of the other droids used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Skippy join in any droid-type games. And <laughs> uh, that's, that's funny. And I, when you think about it, I guess it does kind of make sense that there is a little bit of a... There, there's a culture to being a droid. There is droid culture, and they have social norms of their own. And when you think about it, Skippy has got to be completely outside all of that, you know, because of his higher levels of perception and self-awareness than most other droids, most other droids have. And it's just kind of strange to think, you know, this heroic little droid never really felt welcome at home or comfortable literally anywhere but he ends up falling on his own sword because he knows that his that his destiny as awesome as it might have been would would ultimately come at the undoing of the entire galaxy it would basically allow the empire to consolidate their power to such a degree that they would be unstoppable and skippy realizes you know what they are stoppable right now but this is the turning point. If things go their way in the next couple of days or weeks, that's it. Uh, end of uh, end of the line. And so he, as we saw in Star Wars, he basically has an explosion and seems to die right there. And then Luke talks Uncle Owen into buying R2 and then that's pretty much the end of it. And there's a uh, the very last panel in this story, it basically shows a ghostly uh, Skippy just kind of wandering around uh, Tatooine. And then the narration boxes says, or the, the narration boxes say, be kind to your droids and major uh, appliances. And next time you're alone and you feel something, a faint beeping in your skull or the sound of motors whirring, you may be sensing him. One with the force now, ever present, ever seeking out others of his kind. Others who may be in your kitchen, or on your desk, or in your briefcase. Wherever machines are taken for granted, wherever sentience may exist, there will be Skippy the Jedi droid. And when you think about it, I mean, once you can get your head around the idea of a droid becoming a Jedi, he did legitimately sacrifice himself in order to achieve a greater good for the galaxy. Yeah, I do think his consciousness would merge with the Force and he'd come back as a Force ghost. I mean, once you get around the fact that, yes, he is a, he is a droid, yeah, he probably would come back as a, as a Force ghost. And this is a plot point that I don't think Peter David would have had access to back in 1999. But it, it is weird how... Again, except for the fact that we're talking about a fucking Jedi droid here, it is interesting how this actually does kind of fit in with 
the Star Wars mythos of a Jedi who sacrifices himself to protect somebody else. That is how he becomes one with the Force and merges his consciousness with the Force and yet retains his individuality and perhaps can return as a Force ghost. And that's exactly what happens in this story and it so perfectly lines up with the rules of the Star Wars universe even though Peter David couldn't possibly have known what the rules are. So, I don't know. All around, this is just... It's, it's funny how emotional this story really is considering it's supposed to be just a sort of funny, not-to-be-taken-entirely-seriously type of story, you know? So, I don't know. Overall, I really enjoy it. And like I say, I'm not going to talk about the other two stories for the reasons I've already mentioned, but uh, these two well worth the price of admission and I would even go so far as to say if you like these these two stories here this is a pretty good sample of what Star Wars Tales is all about so I don't know if you guys are into this I would very definitely recommend you guys head out track down copies of Star Wars Tales and and just enjoy the ride it's just these are fun easy little stories and you know just good turn off your brain type of entertainment so anyway i think that's pretty much it for me in this segment so be right back after these messages to talk about feedback Starting in 1993 and ending, also in 1993, DC Comics brought us 25 issues featuring the premiere of new characters who would go on to shape the face of comics of 1993. For over 20 years, DC Comics has tried to bury these new classics like Nightblade, Edge, Hook, Razor Sharp, and other knife-handed heroes for fear they would overshadow their old standards like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Vexed, and Airwave. For too long, our voices have not been heard. But no longer. Coming soon, Bloodline's Best Event Ever Network brings together dozens of podcasters and bloggers who... Wait. What? Okay. Bloodline's Best Event Ever Network brings together several podcasters and bloggers... What now? I'm doing... Really? They all said no? Brings together a few... Does that work? Okay then. A few podcasters and bloggers who are not afraid to stand up and be labeled fools for doing something stupid. Featuring such podcasters and blogs as Diablo Frank, Professor Allen, I Am The Gun, Coffee and Comics, Between the Pages, and myself, Al Sedano. More details can be found at resurrectionsadamwarlock.dumbler.com Bloodlines, Best Event Ever Network, coming on or about April 1st, 2016. April Fools. Or is it?
there is some feedback that I could go through right now, but I choose not to do that. Instead, what I've decided I want to go ahead and do is give you guys a little bit of a preview of coming attractions and basically give you a little bit of an idea of what exactly is in store for this year. And honestly, the reason for that is because this has become a little bit of a tradition. And so that's really the main reason for doing this, don't you see? So I guess really without any kind of great bluster or pretentiousness, what you can expect in the very near future is actually a pair of Star Trek episodes. One episode is going to be about an episode of uh, of the original series, a kind of obvious one, but nevertheless, I, I had never seen it before, so it was new on me. So you've got that to look forward to. In that same episode, I'm also going to be talking about one of the Star Trek movies, that is to say, The Final Frontier. So keep an ear out for that. And then finally, in that episode, I'm going to be talking about a Star Trek The Next Generation comic book. And then, in a separate episode, I'm going to be talking about the Star Trek Next Generation episode called Ensign Row. So, those of you who are fans of Ensign Row, of which I know for sure at least four of you are, well, now you've got something to look forward to. Interspersed with all of that stuff is going to be, first up, an episode about, I guess, not so much my history as a as a collector of Batman action figures, but specifically the Batman action figures of my youth. And so, walking into that thing, I originally thought that I wasn't going to have all that much to say, but when I started actually getting my notes organized for that, what I realized is, you know, son of a bitch, I've actually got quite a lot to say, so that's going to be, I don't know, interesting, I guess, when I finally do get around to recording that, so there's something to look forward to. As all of that's going on, I'm also going to talk about at least one uh, Spectre comic book. Again, don't want to say which one, because that would be giving away the store. Now, wouldn't it? Not very long after all of that, I'm also going to be... Uh, I'm, I'm, what I decided might be kind of fun to do would be to release a, a top five episode. So I picked out a topic, identified my top five and then started getting my notes organized so that I can record a top five episode. So that should be fun. As all of that stuff's going on, I'm going to be continuing my, uh, sm my Smallville retrospective for the fifth season. So as I've gotten my notes organized for that stuff, one of the things I've, I've come to realize is, you know, I've actually got a much, I guess, higher appreciation for the fifth season than I originally thought, you know? When I actually started out, when I embarked upon this Smallville retrospective, the way it went in my mind was that I was going to tear the dreaded fourth season a new asshole. And for the most part, that's basically what I did. But when I started getting my, my notes organized for the fifth season, I was expecting that it was going to be... Maybe not quite as bad as the dreaded fourth season, but I wasn't going to have a whole lot of positive stuff to say, right? Well, it looks like I was mistaken about that, because if my notes are anything to judge by, 
I'm going to have quite a lot of positive stuff to say about the fifth season. So for those of you who are fans of Smallville's fifth season, well, there you go. Moving on from there, I got kind of a, I guess, kind of an urge to talk about uh, some Supreme comics. So you can keep an ear out for that. I'm kind of a fan. And when I say Supreme comics, I mean, to me, Supreme may as well be created by Alan Moore. So when I say Supreme, what you can interpret from that is that I'm referring to Alan Moore's run on Supreme. So just to clarify there, but I kind of, there's really no deeper meaning to any of that. I basically just got the urge to read some Supreme comics and got a crap load of notes organized for a bunch of different Supreme comics. Now I can only guarantee that you're going to be hearing one of them this year there may be more but i can only guarantee one at this time so you'll take what you what what you can get and you'll like it and stuff moving on from there i want one of the things that let's face it i've kind of neglected as i've done this show supposedly my my subject matter is comics movies and TV shows, right? That's what I say in some form or another at the top of every episode. But guys, the reality is, I wager that probably at least 80-85% of my shows have been about specifically comics. And so what I wanted to do was just record a bunch of episodes about some movies. Now, one of those is actually going to... Well, actually, I guess... Two of those movie series, those are actually going to be kind of mega series. That's going to basically make up a mega series. And so I don't want to talk too much about that because I don't want to make promises I won't be able to keep. And, you know, getting everything organized for those shows may end up being a a serious pain in the neck. So I'm going to keep some of this stuff to myself. But what I can say for sure, and like as a guarantee, you will hear this is going to be, first up, a show about the movie Weirdsville. Now, for those of you who've never seen Weirdsville, I do recommend checking it out. Number one, because it's just a fucking funny movie. But the other thing is, I am going to be doing a show about that. And, you know, I had a real ball getting my notes together, so I think that's going to be a ton of fun. There's also going to be a show about Night of the Comet. So, keep an ear out for that. And then, at some point... There's also going to be, you know what, I know for sure I'm going to record a show about this, about this other movie here, but actually, you know what, I think I want to keep this to myself, because this is a little bit, this is a pretty fucking horrifying movie, just in terms of how horrible it is, you know, I mean, its reputation definitely precedes it, for most people, I think. So I think I'll actually want to keep this a, a, a surprise, but you'll you'll know it when you're when you see it. Yes, holy shit, Magnus is doing a show about this movie, and yes, it's just as bad as you've ever heard. So hint hint for those who are feeling a little bit like a detective. So moving on from that, not only did I want to talk about movies, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about some TV shows. So one of those is going to be. Superman the Animated Series ages and ages and ages ago. I got a request from one of you listeners that I talk, and I I don't mean just talk, I mean specifically do commentaries for some Superman the Animated Series episodes, and so I decided, you know what? Fuck it, why not? You know, so 
keep an ear out for that because I'm gonna now that's gonna I'm not gonna lie to you guys that's gonna be a little bit later on in the year it's gonna take some time to get to that but I will I promise get to that and I don't want to say which two Superman the animated series episodes they're gonna be but yes there will be commentary for at least two episodes of Superman the animated series so there's something to look forward to in terms of other stuff that I'm keeping to myself there's also going to be commentary for an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, this is a little bit top secret, such that not only do I not want to tell you what episode I'm going to be talking about, I don't even want to tell you what season I'm going to be talking about, because, you know, this really is intended to be a surprise, and I want you guys to enjoy it, and kind of just walk into it with no expectations, so something to look forward to there. So, yeah. Those of you who are Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans, guys, I've got a Buffy the Vampire commentary, or at least I've got notes for it anyway, all set up and ready to go. So there's another little something-something to look forward to. Meanwhile, interspersed with pretty much everything I've mentioned up to this point, I wanted to talk about Mr. and Mrs. Superman. This was a, a backup series that ran... I think primarily in the 1980s, it was just, uh, there's really not a whole lot to it, really. It was just backups featuring Superman from Earth 2 after he married Lois Lane, and she became Lois Kent. And so, I really dig Mr. and Mrs. Superman. I think that's really one of the great losses that just, it was just part of the bargain, you know, after doing Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, all things Earth 2 are pretty much going to have to go by the wayside. Or at least the, some of the cooler parts of Earth 2 are going by the wayside. And Mr. and Mrs. Superman is definitely one of those things that, you know, I think this backup series is tons of fun. And I just wanted to talk about it. So... I talked about some Mr. and Mrs. Superman, so keep an, keep an ear out for that. And then, finally, another thing I wanted to do was just kind of broaden my horizons a little bit vis-a-vis uh, -vis Spider-Man. And the reason for that is because I'm familiar with Spider-Man movies and with Spider-Man uh, cartoon shows. I'm familiar with, I would say, a decent chunk of Ultimate Spider-Man, but I mean the regular Marvel Universe. 616, if I can even use that term anymore, uh, that version of Spider-Man. It's just... I, I've got less awareness, I suppose, of, of just the regular, mainstream, middle-of-the-road Marvel Universe Spider-Man. I know less about that than I would like, so one of the things that I've sort of made a priority out of is reading some Spider-Man comics, and basically just trying to get into that a little bit more, right? And so, again, actually, you know what? It's tempting to actually want to keep this to myself, but I've kept so much to myself already, it feels like I need to give you guys something. So what I wanted to do was basically start with the Roger Stern run and just kind of work my way through there. So you're, you guys should expect to hear at least one episode about the Roger Stern run on Amazing Spider-Man because I'm kind of I'm not necessarily gonna do it you know just 
one show, one episode, or rather one issue, one episode, and then one episode, one issue. I'm not necessarily doing it that way, but it it won't be, you know, the entire Stern run all at once. You know, it, it's going to get piecemealed out, you know. That way I can go through it with a little bit more of a fine-tooth comb. So there's that. Also, another thing that I wanted to do was talk about the Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle run on Detective Comics. Now, this isn't an area that I've never touched before, but the issues that I want to talk about, and there will be at least one episode about this, maybe more, but for sure, you can expect one, definitely. The, the issue that I wanted to talk about is a little bit earlier in, in the Grant Brayfogle run than anything I've talked about up to this point. It's not exactly at the beginning, of the Grant Brayfogle uh, Bray run, but it's, I, I don't know, maybe, I guess you could say it's nearer the middle, I suppose. So, another thing to look forward to. And so that's really the stuff that you can absolutely, positively, definitely, 100%, absolutely be sure you're going to hear uh, this year, right? Like I say, there's probably going to be a lot more than just this, right? Because everything I've talked about, that's not enough to fill up an entire year's worth of podcasts. But that that stuff is definitely what you can expect uh, to hear. And so uh, looking even further towards the future, and guys, this stuff is a little bit more up for grabs just because I don't even have notes for half of this shit yet. But... A little bit more uh, that's up for grabs is I want to talk about some Bronze Age uh, Superman. I also want to talk about some Bronze Age Batman. So you guys can expect at some point or another. And now we're and again, guys, we're talking way the fuck in the future now. Probably beyond this year. You guys can expect to hear shows concerning uh, Superman in the Bronze Age and Batman in the Bronze Age. But that's not all. I also want to. Uh, swing back to uh, the burn age and uh, for Superman and get a little bit more into that so with Michael Bailey's blessing I've got the beginnings of notes nothing special nothing substantial nothing concrete but I've got you know the beginnings of rudiments of ideas that might someday germinate into a show so we'll just have to see how that plays out also want to revisit uh, the shadow strikes uh, definitely Star Wars Tales because I just had a blast recording this episode. So that's definitely something that, I, that I'm going to want to revisit in the future. Just because, guys, I just fucking love Star Wars Tales. This is a Star Wars comic. Uh, a Star Wars comic, guys. This is what, to me, this is what Star Wars comics need to be, you know? So if all Star Wars comics were along the lines of Star Wars Tales, I would be totally for that. So I'm also going to be, uh, I also want to revisit the Spectre just because I've read like the, the series that I want to talk about, the Spectre series that I want to talk about. I, I haven't read the entire series, but I've read a decent bit of it and really had a blast with it. So definitely want to, want to revisit that. So even though you guys, I, even I, even though you haven't actually heard my first Spectre episode, I'm already thinking about, you know, the next one. So at some point in the future, probably, because all of this stuff is, you know, a definite maybe, you know, maybe I'll do this. So, you know, you got that coming up. Want to talk about some X-Men? 
um, just because, you know, if I don't know a whole lot about Spider-Man, I really don't know a whole lot about the X-Men. So I want to start uh, changing that, you know, basically sharpening up my X-Men acumen a little bit. So that's something to look forward to, maybe. I also want to talk about some Superboy comics, because guys, I am a big Superboy fan. I fucking love Superboy. So, that's something that you guys should, uh, I guess, hope to hear. Because again, I mean, I, I don't even have notes for, the, for a lot of this stuff. I mean, you know, the stuff that I've talked about that you can definitely expect to hear this year. Guys, I've got notes more or less organized for all of that stuff. So all that really needs to be done is just record it at this point, right? And then, obviously, release it. This other stuff, this is a little bit more uh, tentative, you know? At some point, I want to do all of this, but I can't guarantee that you're going to hear it anytime soon. That's why I'm saying it's going to be sometime after this year that probably that you're going to hear a lot of this stuff. So just bear all of that in mind. And then from there, guys, honestly, you know, the future really is wide open. I've got you know, ideas for what I want to talk about, but that stuff is so far in the future that I, I don't even want to even suggest the possibility of talking about this stuff just because of the, you know, the, the, let's face it, guys, life happens and who's to say that maybe I could change my mind later on. So who knows, but that should at least give you a starting point in terms of the some of the stuff, not necessarily by no means. In fact, is it everything, but a decent am am amount of the stuff that you guys can expect to hear over the next year or so. There you have it. You know, decent amount of Star Trek, a little bit of Spectre, a, a, a top five episode, and then so on and so forth from there. You know, all of this is basically shaping up to be, it, it looks like it's going to be a pretty fun year in podcasting. And I, I just, I honestly, I can't wait to get to it. Especially, you know what? I'm going to circle back to Smallville for just a second. Especially Smallville. The reason for that is because for a goodly bit of the dreaded fourth season and the, and just the retrospective episodes that I had to do a, you know, about the dreaded fourth season, guys, there was just so little uh, positivity at times because, it, you know, every compliment that I gave Smallville during the, the dreaded fourth season retrospective, it was tempered by five or six criticisms. So it, it's going to be kind of nice to just sort of get back to normal, as it were, with Smallville, you know? And just, just start enjoying the show again. So I'm really looking forward to that, you know? So Smallville, but with less bloodletting, I guess. So, anyway, I think that's pretty much it for me as far as comings attra uh, coming attractions and whatnot are concerned. So, I think that's pretty much it. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. dramatic reading what you gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk i'm a get 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 
get you drunk, get you love drunk, off my hump, 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 my lovely little lumps. Check it out. I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen, maybe Sharon. All their money got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans. True religion. I say no, but they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on demonstrating. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. 
Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>